We'd like to take a minute to thank our sponsor, Cash App. Cash App has been the number one finance app on the App Store for almost two years. It was also the first major peer-to-peer payments app to support Bitcoin, and it's still the fastest and easiest way to turn cash into crypto. Cash App now supports Bitcoin deposits in-app, so be sure to move your Bitcoin from whatever wallet you're using to Cash App. Don't have any to deposit? Cash App is also the most convenient way to instantly buy and sell Bitcoin. No more waiting five days for your ACH transfers to come through. With Cash App, you can buy Bitcoin instantly. When you're ready to take full ownership of your private keys, just use Cash App to scan an external wallet's QR code. It's really that simple. Cash App also comes with standard banking features like direct deposits and others your bank would never even consider, like Cash Card a customizable debit card that lets you instantly save every time you use it at Lyft, Whole Foods, and places like Chick-fil-A. It's also a favorite of the block's analyst, Steven Zhang. He saves money at Chipotle every time he gets a burrito. That keeps Steven happy, that keeps the block happy, and that keeps the crypto world informed with the best news and research in the entire market. Download Cash App today from the App Store or Google Play, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining me for what is a very special episode of The Scoop. Uh, I am joined it's a boring by... boring episode, I think. Well, that's true. <laughs> it's going to be a little boring because we have Perry Ann Boring, the founder of the Chamber of Digital Commerce, joining us. It is a blockchain, cryptocurrency, advocacy organization based down in D.C., founded in 2014. Yes. And so the idea of the organization is to advocate on behalf of their members to members of Congress, the Senate, and other policymakers um, there and abroad. So you guys have been at it for a while, since 2014. Um, previously, you were a TV host, an adjunct professor still, right? And you, you, you've, you've, um, you've been around the block in terms of policy and advocacy work. And so I'd like to hear the story that you have in terms of how has the environment for uh, blockchain advocacy and policy work, how has it changed since your earliest days? Well, thanks so much uh, for having me here, Frank. My pleasure. Um, I, I spent a lot of time uh, thinking about and working in the blockchain policy space. Uh, we launched the Chamber of Digital Commerce in July of 2014. So we're about five and a half years old. Uh, the journey to set up the chamber um, was quite interesting. Um, and it goes back to kind of the really early days of crypto. Um, in 2013, really being that big year where a lot of the um, ideas and the foundation of the chamber was built. Um, for those who remember 2013, uh, the, the, I would say the positive thing that happened this year or that year is the, the Cyprus uh, bailouts. That was really the first time that Bitcoin made international headlines. Cyprus um, was going through their ne- negotiations with the European Union. Um, they ended up being bailed out. Um, but during that time, there was a lot of economic uncertainty and the people of Cyprus started buying Bitcoin and that caught the, the international news um, attention. Um, and that caused a huge increase in the price of Bitcoin. That's when the Bitcoin first hit $1,300. Um, it ended up coming back down, but it was kind of an exciting opportunity for people in this space to really see 
um, the use case of Bitcoin being put into practice. Um, that year was also, um, uh, we also had a couple scandals that year. So uh, Silk Road being one of the big ones, as well as Mt. Gox, the, the failure of the Bitcoin exchange in Japan. Um, and those were two very black, two um, very um, uh, left black eyes on, on the industry. And um, as someone who was living and working in Washington, D.C. and in policy, to me, it was quite obvious that there was a need to have dedicated professionals who really understood the technology and the industry to go work with policymakers to help them understand what they're reading in the news, you know, get beyond the headline of, you know, Bitcoin, you know, used to buy illegal drugs sure. to what's actually happening. Um, and when you have that, those types of things happening in the news, a lot of times policymakers feel the need to respond, and they oh, did. Sure. And that's where the bit license came from. If you guys remember, Ben Lasky said many times that he started the bit license process as a direct result of what had happened in Japan with Mt. Gox. Mm -hmm. um, so we did feel that it was really necessary that this industry had policy professionals and experts guiding regulators and the way that they're going to address and treat this technology. To what degree do you think those, as you described them, black eyes still leave an impression or a stain on the market in the eyes of policymakers down in Washington? We are still in an era of fear of the unknown, anxiety of the, these headlines. You know, it started with you know Bitcoin being used to buy illegal drugs, to the ICO boom of uh, you know uh, fraud and uh, investor protection issues. Um, and today, I think some of the, the bigger things of uh, fear are more around national security issues, and we can get into those in a little bit more detail, but fear, anxiety, and a lot of skepticism. You know, mm -hmm. there's been a lot of hype around blockchain uh, and not a ton of applications and implementation of the technology at, at a wide scale, a lot of promises. Um, but what ultimately is the community and the industry um, delivering? So we are still in, in a, uh, we still deal with a lot of fear, anxiety, and skepticism. It has evolved and the conversations have matured in a very big way. Well, to a degree, right? The pendulum, a lot of the times will swing too far um, down in DC. And so are we seeing it swing back the other way? Um, more middle ground? Maybe Facebook might have... I think Facebook is kind of a, an interesting um, story because what Facebook ultimately did for the policy, the blockchain policy community, is it took the conversations to a much higher level within government. So really before Facebook, not a lot of folks were giving these topics much time. They just felt like this was a tiny industry. We have bigger things to deal with not a priority for us. Sure. Once Facebook made their announcement, that made a lot of people sit in their chairs a lot straighter when we start talking about cryptocurrencies. That's when Treasury Secretary Mnuchin gave a press conference from the White House. First time President Donald Trump ever tweeted about Bitcoin, I'm pretty <laughs> sure. I, I took those tweets and I printed them out and I put them in gold frames and they are the crown jewels of our office now. But <laughs> well, to have it, us. it's it's pretty significant. And I think what Facebook did was it brought the conversation from is Bitcoin good or evil? This this thing, Bitcoin, which was then which was conflated for everything under the sun in this market to, OK, 
what happens when a large, one of the largest technology firms decides it's going to create something different with money and possibly create its own version of money that could then rival the dollar? And so it goes from congressmen, congresspeople, legislators being nervous about this tool that's being used by illicit characters to, well, this could be something serious that can be used to, you know, either make a lot of money or change the world from a financial inclusion perspective, and maybe not just Facebook, but China or the European Union, and it becomes um, something much more serious to talk about. Yeah, the geopolitical issues are actually quite interesting. Um, look, looking around the world of what other governments are doing in this space, um, it's quite uh, amazing. In the United States, the tone, you know, again, fear, anxiety, skepticism, and the way regulators are approaching this space is very much through enforcement. So the mass majority of the conversations that are happening in D.C. today are about going after the bad actors and mitigating against the risk of the technology. So that's a very defensive approach as opposed to a more proactive. Very different than other areas of the world. And it, it is quite telling to see that we have major developed economies that are taking proactive steps to one, invite innovators into their jurisdiction to build companies that are building on blockchains and to develop the technology for government purposes. Central bank digital currency um, being one of those, but probably one of the more interesting topics. The People's Bank of China has been researching and looking into Not just a digital currency. <laughs> well, no, but researching. Building. Going back to 2014. For years. And, and building, uh, at obviously. At least five years. At least five years. Yeah. Yeah. And so this isn't something that's new, obviously, but there was a Fortune headline that I read uh, that described, you know, essentially we're in the final steps, describing those final steps as a wake-up call for the United States. And I think when you look at some of the folks down in Washington, there is now a newfound anxiety about China getting ahead on developing, building out, and dominating in this space. You guys have done a ton of research into what China is doing. But first, before we get into that, I'd like to know what is the sentiment down on Capitol Hill about the sort of China versus U.S dominance question when it comes to blockchain and digital currencies? There's a lot of intense conversations happening right now between the United States and China broadly. Where blockchain fits into that, or if, if it even fits into that, you know, was not a part of the, the, the trade deal that we just finalized. Um, but there, we, the, the United States in general has a lot of issues with, with the Chinese government and the Chinese um, economy. What I think we really should be focused on is being a leader in this space. Um, and there is absolutely no question that China is a or the leader in blockchain and, and sure. central bank digital currency. And we have, the United States has so much to lose if we just cede its technological leadership to any other jurisdiction. Um, and there are a number of people that understand that and recognize that. There's not enough, you know, look at Congress, you have 535 members of Congress, you know, 100 senators. 
um, 435 members in the House. And a you, nice civics lesson for our, our listeners. <laughs> for those who don't remember, um, you, you need a lot of people um, to actually get something done in Congress. Um, and there are lots of people throughout Washington, D.C. that are big supporters of blockchain, but it's, um, uh, you know, the process of getting but, but something done. But what is more done. powerful, Perry Ann? What, what, what sentiment is more powerful? The notion of we want to protect consumers and investors from a big monster like Facebook, the sort of Maxime Waters of the world versus the folks who don't want to get beat by China. Which which sentiment is stronger? Do and you it's think, not at this point? it's not we don't want to get beat by China. It's protecting our national security. Sure. And that is always the Trump card. And I, I don't mean that. <laughs> no pun intended. Sure. Um, so but, what do you mean by that? Uh, as soon as our national security comes into question. Uh, rather, is this being viewed as a national security issue? In earnest by I think it's very easy to make a national security argument out of this. I don't think the national security community is quite turned on to it yet, but I bet they will be soon. And it's an argument that I presume you're making to the folks you're advocating to. So how do you present that argument? Well, I think when it comes to central bank digital currency, it's quite simple. The United States has benefited greatly from the US dollar being the world reserve currency. The dollar is constantly under attack by uh, many countries around the world. One of the ways the dollar is being um, attacked is through technology. And if we do not have the best technology that's underpinning our financial system and another country leapfrogs our infrastructure, that could very well jeopardize are standing on the world stage. Um, that is a long way away. I don't think that's going to happen this year or next year, but I do think that is a possibility. To what degree do you think members of Congress or the Senate appreciate that argument or have come to terms with it? There's a handful that understand that. Yeah. A handful. And, and, so and I'll even say we have um, a member that's based in New York, they, they, it's an investment company, they're making investments throughout the, the blockchain um, ecosystem. Um, and one of their principals has been um, in China uh, recently and has been spending time out there and they have an office there. And they are so concerned that they are coming to DC um, and they're gonna give uh, a private briefing to a group of members of Congress, really anybody that will come, mm -hmm. just to share with them what they're seeing on the ground um, in terms of how serious uh, China is taking this and their concerns about how serious we're not taking it. Not only that, we're discouraging innovation through our regulatory approaches. So there's a lot of people that understand how important this is, uh, but ultimately to get things done in Washington is an incredibly complicated process. And of course, right now, you know, all the oxygen is being sucked out on the impeachment process, which, you know, really doesn't do much to advance any policy goals. That Collusion, delusion. <laughs> yeah. You, you guys have sifted through the 94 filings, patent filings um, that the Chinese government has made. 84. 84. 84 patents that People's Bank of China has filed over 84 patents on behalf of the Chinese government just on their central bank 
digital currency project. What is the main takeaway or what are the main takeaways of those filings? Does it paint a picture of what they're creating? How many questions left un are left unanswered or have been answered by some of these patents? So we are looking at patent applications. So they're not patent patents yet, but sure. it does give a, a, a very strong um, look into wh what they've built and how they've designed their central bank digital currency platform. Um, the biggest takeaway is that it's essentially fully integrated into their existing financial system. Um, the digital currency wallets, they're going to be bound to conventional bank accounts in a dynamic manner. Uh, digital currency circulation will be managed by the central bank system. Uh, payments and deposits will be processed through the commercial banks. Um, users will be pseudo-anonymous, which means they will be anonymous to on a user basis, but the, the government will likely have full transparency. So I would actually argue there's a, a large lack of transparency. Um, and regulators will be able to track all transaction information, including the identity of the transacting parties, um, processing um, the, the way data will be um, uh, transacted in various ways um, with a very high degree of regulatory oversight. Uh, so you know, what we found actually was not quite surprising to us um, that, again, this is going to be highly integrated into their banking system. Uh, the banks will play a big role um, in this and uh, you know, a degree of, of privacy concerns. Mm -hmm. um, so out of these 84 patents, there's really four um, categories we put them into. The digital uh, currency management circulation and interbank settlement is one. Digital currency wallets, uh, processing payments and deposits and distributed ledger transactions and technology. Aside from the privacy concerns, is there anything that, you know, could be considered as a positive or actually moving the needle forward in, in terms of blockchain innovation? Anything that's particularly striking as a development? Well, really the government of China's approach to blockchain, I think is what's the biggest takeaway. And it really started even before we started looking into their central bank digital currency platform. Blockchain is part of China's five-year plan. This is one major part mm -hmm. of that plan. Um, but they're integrating blockchain all across the government. Um, we have been following what they've publicly put out in the news um, for several years. And we have pages and pages and pages of articles and speeches and statements. It is quite amazing just the level of investment and development um, China is making into blockchain technology. I think that's a massive um, uh, sign that this technology is as important as we think it is at the chamber to have governments taking this as serious um, as China um, is. Uh, you know, I think there's certainly concerns about how governments could use this technology. Um, and given, you know, China's history of, you know, privacy and <laughs> other issues, uh, you know, of course, we wouldn't want blockchain to be a way to, you know, create, um, you know, greater abuses within the system. Um, but it certainly validates, it's a huge validation to blockchain technology if it's in the right hands. Um, 
one other thing that kind of jogs my memory is their army said they made a public statement saying that they were looking at blockchain for gray warfare or for espionage. So again, getting back to those national security um, considerations, if there's other governments that are looking to use blockchain as a part of their defense strategy, you know, shouldn't the U.S. government also be looking at this technology? Yeah. How uh, would that work? How could uh, blockchain be used to enhance espionage? Well, look at the 5G arguments where these 5G um, instruments have backdoors in them. And they're, you know, China is giving away all sorts of technological, um, uh, all sorts of technology to, to other countries around the world. And it turns out these uh, systems are tampered with. Um, so, you know, would they do that with other technologies? Maybe. That's pretty interesting and a bit scary. Here in the U.S., though, you know, we have folks who are trying to champion this idea of getting not just the private sector involved, but but the public sector, the, the government. Um, former CFTC chairman uh, Chris Giancarlo uh, recently unveiled his digital dollar project. Um, I think you guys are involved to some extent with that. So uh, Chris Giancarlo joined our board of advisors That's several right. months ago. Um, the digital dollar project is is Chris's project. It's sure, separate yeah. of the chamber. Um, but kind of the way we're looking at it is one, our mission at the chamber is to promote the acceptance and use of digital assets and blockchain based technologies. So we support blockchain innovation in the public and the private sectors. And there's certainly a role for both. Um, the idea of having a digital dollar is something that I think is important um, and exciting, but is also something that's inevitable. If you look around the world, there's over um, you know 70% of all central banks today are either interested in or already pursuing central bank digital currency. You know what? As a as a casual um, you know country podcaster, if you will, I might not fully appreciate the benefit of a digital dollar. What what does it change for the ordinary person? Um, you know. How does it make the way I interact on a daily basis better? Why do we need um, a dollar that's digitized? Putting the, the, the national security issues that you've mentioned aside, from a practical micro level, does it benefit Frank any more than what we currently have? Uh, I mean, I, I would argue that money today is, I mean, the dollar is already digitized in, in, in many ways. Um, I mean, you know, again, I I think central bank digital currency is happening. It's going to happen. And I think it's going to be important for the United States to be a leader in that. Yeah, but, but, but like why? Well, I mean, who has the best technology is going to benefit from the benefits of those technology. Look at the Internet. The internet was invented and created by the United States, and it was the U.S. that led the influence, the commercialization of the internet. This is what Al Gore and Bill Clinton did during that administration. Al Gore built the internet. That well, <laughs> um, he led the public policy sure, of course. initiatives that encouraged innovation in the United States to develop the commercialization of the internet. And look at how the U.S. has benefited 
from that. The largest companies in the world today are internet-related companies. By our estimates, at least 18 countries are examining or are developing their own digital currencies, um, 18 central banks, that is. There could be a potential kind of war, right? Not not a you know, money arms war, but a money war. Money wars. Going into 2020 and beyond. How do you see that playing out? Wow, that's a, uh, <laughs> it could be a big question. Yeah, um, there was a study by the Bank of International Settlements, and they said about 70 central banks are interested or already pursuing central bank digital currency. You know, I, I don't see the the United States taking this lightly. I mean, they certainly don't. If you go back to that press conference from Secretary Mnuchin in response to Libra, what he was talking about in terms of cryptocurrencies, he said, you know, take note, we take the U.S. dollar as the world reserve currency very seriously. Um, and they will protect that at all cost. So it's a matter of helping the government understand how important this technology is and how it is really evolving the financial and the monetary systems internationally. Um, and there's some other kind of you know geopolitical things we sh we should look at. If you remember at Jackson Hole mm -hmm. uh, meetings last year, where Mark Carney called for an alternative to the U.S. dollar. Um, and he, uh, you know, said the system's not working and it doesn't work for a lot of countries. Um, so money is changing and money is evolving. And where we are today is a product of our past. Um, and I think one of the most exciting things that Facebook has done is create an international awakening and conversation about what money is. You know, just 75 years ago, the world came together after World War II and created the Britain Wood system. The Britain Wood system was a type of gold standard. Um, and just to kind of give you an idea of what that looked like, what everyone agreed to is that gold would be priced at $35 an ounce. The US dollar would be the world reserve currency. All the currencies would be pegged to the dollar and they could legally demand gold from the US treasury. And look at where we are today. There's no gold standard. Everyone is on flo these floating exchange rates. And uh, the, the, the financial and the monetary system has evolved so much in just 75 years. Mm -hmm. And now we have more advanced technologies like artificial intelligence, blockchain technology, the internet. You know, think about how much more money is going to evolve over the next 75 years. And I think that's really exciting. But what I think is more exciting is the idea that we can actually get back to sound money. And I think a lot of people are starting to demand that with being educated on what money is um, and wanting something that, that works for everybody. Um, so how is this gonna end up? Um, nobody knows the answer to that, but I would bet- but Are we too far behind? Are we too far? I don't I mean, think China's we're too been, far behind. China's been no, chipping I, away at this for five years. I don't think we're too far behind. The US is really good at catching up. The, the you know, the, the US, um, the American private sector and the entrepreneurial um, spirit of the United States is so powerful and massive. Um, and this goes back to Chris Giancarlo's op-ed in the, in the Wall Street Journal. He said, we could put a man on the moon, let's put the dollar in cyberspace. When we put the first man on the moon, it, it was partnerships with the public and the private sector that got us there. And we won the space race. Um, I don't see why we can't win this if we're focused and we do it in a way that 
encourages innovation within the private sector, which is not the approach China's necessarily taking. Well, let's then pivot over to the private sector and talk about some of the concerns and impediments that exist there. In terms of your members, what are some of the biggest impediments for them in terms of building out their respective businesses? Um, and how are you advocating to change that? So the federal government is an incredibly complicated organism, and we have a fragmented approach to regulation, specifically financial regulation. So the SEC, you know, regulating securities, you know, the CFTC regulating derivatives. You have Treasury with their anti-money laundering statutes and IRS with tax. Mm -hmm. And there really is no coordinated approach to um, regulation, oversight, um, and or if the government was going to build on this technology, there's no coordination there either. So what we have proposed at the chamber is a national action plan for blockchain. We are concerned that one, we are not leaders, and two, we have no way to get there today. Um, we need a an office of blockchain technology who's responsible for understanding this technology and building a plan to make the United States a leader in this technology, which would include coordinating the regulatory oversight of companies that are innovating sure. in this space. So that action plan would include building out an agency that would be the sole... Not an agency, of, an office. An office. <laughs> so what's the difference between an agency and an office? Well, we're not advocating for a whole new agency, sure. like the agency of blockchain. We just think there should be a person... But that would sound so cool. Well, we don't want to expand the government that much. We just think someone in government should be responsible. <laughs> Small government. I like it. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, getting a, a new agency, thats I don't think that's absolutely necessary. So we, it wouldn't be on par with the CFTC, SEC, but maybe an office within one of those. Yeah, an office within the White House would be the ideal place to okay. put it. Why in the White House? Uh, because the, the White House serves as, as a coordinator of the agencies already. Okay. Um, and also the White House has executive authority. So you could see, you know, a, a um, executive order being issued for blockchain. Um, you know, we modeled our national action plan for blockchain off of the internet, the plan that was done for the internet. Okay. Um, and we even brought in and talked to, you know, teams that worked on that um, to advise us on, you know, how do we build a national action plan for blockchain? Okay, walk us through what that would look like. It's very simple. We're Great. calling for two things. <laughs> One, we want a positive statement on behalf of the U.S. government about the importance of blockchain and encouraging the private sector to develop on blockchains in the United States of America. And then two, that, that, that office of blockchain that's responsible for building the action plan and coordinating the different agencies and departments that all have equities in this technology. Okay, I see. And so it would sort of sit between the different regulatory bodies that have oversight over whether it's crypto companies, crypto assets, crypto derivatives, and kind of ensure... But it's not limited to that. So there already is some degree of coordination that's happening out of FSOC, and it's just the financial services regulators. Great. But blockchain is much bigger than just financial services applications. Course, yeah. There's all sorts of Healthcare and groups that are innovating in other oh, ways, and they need to be a part of the conversation as well. Interesting. And so 
once how how do you get those things to come to fruition? I mean, what does that look like on the ground? You know, cold calling Donald Trump. What what what, what does it involve? <laughs> Uh, sending tweets and DMs to to President Trump. Have you done that? <laughs> um, so we have. Uh, there's two ways we can go about it. Um, one uh, is you know have the the White House create the office, um, and uh, or go to Congress. Um, and there has been a number of members of the Blockchain Caucus that wrote a letter to the White House urging them to do just this. But it would be difficult now with that Brad Sherman guy. Who I think he's just one of five hundred and thirty-five. But he's a chair now of that subcommittee. Yeah, but this subcommittee wouldn't be responsible. This would this wouldn't need to go through that subcommittee. What would what would it need to go through? Um so likely um you know, potentially energy and commerce. Mm. And he's on financial services. That's right. Yeah. And is that is that core to the chamber's plans for 2020 or it's is one it kind so of like we a have, pipe dream uh it's not a pipe dream this is a real project that <laughs> I say we that think should happen uh and uh it, and um there's a few other things that we're looking at of course we want the u.s to be the leader in blockchain technology and encouraging you know the u.s to develop a national action plan for blockchain um is one um two we're doing a lot of work in aml so mm -hmm. uh treasury has and fencen has issued new guidance around the travel rules. So uh, we have some deadlines coming up this summer, um, taking that very seriously and ensuring that companies have the tools they need to be in compliance there. Um, and then three is all things around tokens. So continuing to work um, on clarifying the jurisdiction of digital tokens, um, digital securities, you know, right, laws and regulations around um, the digital securities market um, and the taxation of um, digital tokens as well. We've talked a lot about CBDCs, um, the government and private sector being involved in blockchain technology and working towards making that a simpler process. What about Bitcoin? Bitcoin specifically as a store of value, as a digital gold, as a a new form of, of payment and um, seamless transaction. Since the chamber was founded, how has the idea of Bitcoin in Washington changed? And has that improved? I mean, is it still brought down by those black eyes that we talked about at the beginning of the show? Um, so I think, you know, kind of what's been interesting is seeing the Fed's evolution of their thinking on Bitcoin. So the first time anyone at the Fed publicly talked about Bitcoin was Janet Yellen in a congressional hearing in I think it was 2013 and she it was 2013 and chuck Sh schumer who was calling for a ban on bitcoin in response to all the silk road stuff he asked her during the hearing if she would ban bitcoin and her response was we do not have jurisdiction over bitcoin next question please like that was she did not want to talk about it at all and she kind of shut the question down but it was crazy because the whole industry was all like what does the fed think of bitcoin and that's the only thing we got and it wasn't for like several more years she said something else later and the next statement she made which was in 2016 she gave a talk and she said um central bankers around the world should be doing everything they can to understand blockchain technology um and so they've given a lot of talks both janet yellen um 
as well as Governor Lael Brainerd, who's kind of deemed like the fintech governor over at the Board of Governors on blockchain and its use within the greater financial system and kind of addressing how banks are innovating with blockchain technology. But the next statement about Bitcoin came from the new chair, Powell, and he was just asked recently about Bitcoin and he said it's like digital gold. And that was, I think, one of the most exciting things that we had really seen come out of the Fed where you had the chair really acknowledge one of the most important use cases for Bitcoin as a store of value. So their thinking and the way that they're even willing to talk about it publicly has changed dramatically, which I do think gives a nod to the importance of this technology. Perian, when something like that happens, how does the chamber respond? When, when you have a positive development like that, do you go out and you know, sort of notify everyone and, and try to build around, build a message around that. <laughs> you know, what does the on the ground activism look like when something like that happens? Well, of course, we, we keep a collection of all speeches and statements that come from either regulators or um, policymakers or policy leaders around digital assets as well as blockchain technology. And we archive some of those on our website so people can see the positive things our nation's leaders are saying about this technology. Um, we also use it to help companies understand the regulatory landscape. So because we don't always have regulatory clarity, sometimes companies have to use speeches and statements to inform their thinking on how the regula old regulations will apply to this new technology. Um, so sometimes it will make its way into legal memos um, and or um, you know, other documents that are used to build um, re regulatory plans or uh, programs for companies. Um, and then we can also use those and share them with other agencies. So different agencies may not be aware of the Fed statements on blockchain or digital currencies. Yeah. And again, because you don't have that central coordinating function, we end up doing a lot of that coordinating ourselves, going back and forth um, to make sure people are aware of the landscape and are aware of the work that's being done and ensuring that you don't have conflict of law situations arise as well. Mm -hmm. When you think about the, the different avenues by which you can impact the regulatory landscape, obviously there's, you know, through enforcement actions or through an act of Congress, maybe through executive power. What is the most effective in your view? Well, the easiest thing is always if the agencies can issue new rules or Some, regulations. Something like, something like Hinman coming out and saying, ETH is likely so that would be wasn't a, a security and so right maybe it could this have is actually been getting at one of the heart be. of the issues, especially yeah. with the SEC, is you have speeches and statements. Those those are not binding to the commission itself. So it's not actual guidance. It's not binding guidance. Um, but that's kind of what we have today. Um, the best thing is if so you So why have, are they doing that? Why 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 would they come out and sort of give statements and sort of um, I mean, convoluted statements, honestly, um, versus, hey, here's what this is. Well, even sometimes they contradict, review. right? You may have yeah. one commissioner that says one thing and another commissioner that says something else. And if in the absence of having guidance, it's, well, which one is it? Sure. Um, yeah. So how do you, not how do you navigate that, but honestly, what is the impetus of that? What, what is the, um, the reason for it? Well, uh, logic and reason do not always persist. 
in policy, um, especially in Washington. Um, one of the results of that is you have different uh, bodies getting involved in the legal process. So there's a lot of companies that are not happy with the current state of um, regulation. And so they've gone to Congress and now Congress is starting to introduce all sorts of legislative proposals to fix some of those challenges. And then it's also going to the courts. So there's also companies that are um, involved in litigation and now the courts are going to be weighing in. So you have the courts, you have the agencies, you have Congress. It, it's getting quite complex. And you have the Chamber of Digital Commerce sitting in between all of it, trying to figure out how they can advance the space. Logic and reason do not always persist in policy. Such a great quote to end the show. <laughs> I firmly agree. It was, I think it was a Ronald Reagan quote who said, or no, I think it might have been older than that. The point of bureaucracy is to improve the state of bureaucracy. Um, but in any case, Perry Ann, thank you so much for joining us. We hope to have you again on soon. And safe flight back to DC. Awesome. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Thank you. That was great fun. Very fun. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Scoop. We hope you tune in next time. And don't forget to subscribe and favorite wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'd like to take a minute to thank our sponsor, Cash App. Cash App has been the number one finance app on the App Store for almost two years. It was also the first major peer-to-peer payments app to support Bitcoin. And it's still the fastest and easiest way to turn cash into crypto. Cash App now supports Bitcoin deposits in-app, so be sure to move your Bitcoin from whatever wallet you're using to Cash App. Don't have any to deposit? Cash App is also the most convenient way to instantly buy and sell Bitcoin. No more waiting five days for your ACH transfers to come through. With Cash App, you can buy Bitcoin instantly. When you're ready to take full ownership of your private keys, just use Cash App to scan an external wallet's QR code it's really that simple. Cash App also comes with standard banking features like direct deposits and others your bank would never even consider, like Cash Card, a customizable debit card that lets you instantly save every time you use it at Lyft, Whole Foods, and places like Chick-fil-A. Download Cash App today from the App Store or Google Play, and I hope you